Hey everybody, Wynn Claybaugh here and welcome to this issue of Masters. I'm always so grateful for the friends and the connections that I have because uh, those brilliant, amazing people who make a difference in my life then connect me to other incredible people who are going to make a difference not only in in my existence and all the things that I need help with, and that's a very long list, but also I know that I have a platform. I know that I have influence and I have a voice, and so I always want to use that platform and use that voice to make a difference in the lives of other people. And I'll, I'll tell you, I was on the phone on my drive down here this morning with uh, a young kid, he's 25 years old, who is struggling with uh, prescription drug addiction and was telling me, oh, well, I moved away to get away from that circle. Okay, well, that's a good step. Uh, but the insurance doesn't cover me down here, so I'm screwed. There's nothing I can do. You know, I'm, I've been three and a half weeks clean, but there's nothing I can do. And so I just have to wait until my insurance kicks in so I can check myself into a facility. And I'm like, well, that's the first lie you just told yourself. So I, I need information and I, I need great mentors in my life. And that's why we're doing this interview. So everybody, welcome to Masters with my now new best friend, Wes here. Yeah. Hey, what's up? <laughs> Thanks, Wes, for doing this. Hey, thank you for doing it. Thanks for having me here. Well, we, today was the first day that we met. We've been connected yeah. with each other for uh, a couple of months now. Yeah. But you, you never even said no from the very beginning. You had no idea who I was. You had yeah. no idea who, what my intentions were. But I just yeah. started asking and asking, and you said yes every step of the way. Well, two things. I'm a musician and we love to talk. And another thing, I'm a musician and we love to talk about ourselves. So let's get that. I'd like to paint this as total altruism. But the reality is also uh, more seriously is I was given the gift of recovery that I didn't go find on my own buried in some island, you know, treasure. I was shown it by a bunch of different people. And I heard a great quote uh, recently from my friend MJ Gottlieb. I probably messed up his last name. Uh, but he says, you know, recovery, if you're not giving it back to other people, then you're shoplifted. You're just taken for yourself. And I thought, well, that's a cool way to put it. You know, I have an amazing story. And this isn't me bragging, meaning it's amazing that I was near death, and now I have this incredible life, meaning near death, lost, didn't know what the heck was going to happen. Now I have this incredible life only because people showed me what to do, how to recover, and did what I'm doing now, get out there and share their story. Tell us the quote again. So if you don't share your gift of recovery with others, then you're shoplifting. Wow, I like yeah. that. Yeah, there, there's, there's a quote, uh, service is the rent that we pay for room on this earth. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm probably not <laughs> telling it exactly. Yeah. Well. Meaning the idea of that we're all taking up space here. Yeah. We take up the space of recovery. Yeah. And if we're not giving it back, if we're not in service of other people, then uh, we have debt to pay. Yeah. And uh, that's a, a little topic that I'm very passionate about because, and I'm going to use a broad stroke uh, story that's overly dramatic, but, you know, I, I live in Laguna Beach and I see guys come in to support group meetings, let's say, and they're in a rehab in Laguna Beach, which is gorgeous, I'm sure. And they're in Laguna Beach and being served meals. And they're like metaphorically have their arms folded on their chest going, you know what, what, what's recovery got for me? Where's mine? Where's mine? It's like, no, man, go give yourself to other people, you know, and that's how recovery started. The early versions of these 12 step programs, they weren't gurus with 20 years of sobriety. They were a few guys that had a few days or weeks or months that said, the only way we're going to stay sober and recover is go help other people. Hmm. And there were probably some sick you-know-whats yeah. doing that, but they had to do it. To, and so I think that's the big paradigm shift we got to get into. I haven't even told people who you are yet. <laughs> oh, knows well, your, it doesn't even matter. Well, no, I, I need to because you, you have a story to tell, and it's your story that gives yeah. you credibility for what we're talking about here today. Yeah. And, and just let me just say that there might be people already listening to this thinking, oh, I can turn this off because I don't have an addiction problem. Well, yeah. neither do I anymore. I'm, I'm yeah. in recovery. But again, the, the story that I told that this morning, I was on the phone with somebody. Anybody listening to this who thinks that they don't have somebody in their life who needs this information or who needs somebody who will support them in this journey, i.e., I'm talking to you right now, the listener. <laughs> if you think that this does not apply to you and that this is, is outside of your realm of, of where you need to go, 
you know, please think again. Just stick with us. Do you do you yeah. agree with that? Well, yeah, it's a family disease. It goes much farther than just the person who is directly an addict. But here's the thing. As I got out into the world, they have a saying in rooms of uh, recovery that we practice these principles in all our affairs. The reality is I am a 12-stepper. There's not anybody in the world at any level who wouldn't benefit from the 12-step process, meaning that this stuff goes far beyond. Like if you're struggling in life anywhere, I'm not saying that uh, you have to run out and do the 12 steps right now, but these tenets, these these traditions, these things we do can help anyone, anywhere, in any situation. So it's far beyond addiction. So I think my point is if you're listening and you're not addicted, there's always valuable things in these philosophies. And that's so funny because I was on another phone call I had this morning. Busy was man. with the, I was, Well, I was with a guy who is recently diagnosed with colitis. And so he's telling me all the things that he needs to do to manage this. He's like, there's, yeah. there's no cure for this, but it's manageable. And yeah. here's how I'm going to manage this. So my yeah. wife and I have had to make these changes and these decisions. He's like, oh, by the way, everything that they're teaching me to do it will benefit anybody. You don't have to go through this. Exactly. You don't have to go through cancer to learn what somebody who has gone through that can teach you the, the life yeah. lessons. You don't have to yeah. go through a mental health crisis to understand the importance of, okay, uh, cut back on caffeine, cut back on clutter, cut back on toxic relationships. I need more sleep at night. I mean, all those things that you would do in your life to manage this is good news for everybody. It's, yeah. it's good advice for everybody to live by. Yeah. When I got through the 12-step process, I was like, oh my gosh, I know so many people who are great people, successful people that would benefit so much from applying these philosophies in their life. And so the 12 steps came from all these different spiritual uh, ways to live that were way before Alcoholics Anonymous and NA and all that kind of stuff that they grabbed and that happened to work for addiction, but uh, they work for everybody everywhere. Yeah, great. Okay, so let me just share with you who I'm sitting with. So Wes Gear is a professional guitar player, songwriter, recording artist, and producer who signed his first record deal to drive records with the band he founded, Head P.E. Yep. Wes toured the world for nearly a decade, and the band sold over one million records worldwide. Their music was on high rotation on MTV radio stations as well as having numerous placements in popular feature films, TV, and video games. Again, reading here. Now, eventually, you then became a the guitar player for the band Korn, Korn. and you toured with them for how long? I uh, to I think, four years. Yeah. Now, they were looking for a sober, sober guitar, guitar player. Why? Yeah. yeah. Which is the cool part of that story is I, I thought my music career was over because I left my first band as totally strung out and heavy drinker and all that. And so when I got sober, I thought, well, you know, music's obviously done for me. I got to be sober now. And I think this is one point I want to make to anybody out there is that our heads love to lie to us and tell us what our future is going to be like or the limitations or what the possibilities are based in nothing because we don't know. It's just this logic we have. So my logic was I'll never play music again now that I'm sober. Well, the universe was like, no, that's not true. Actually, you're going to get the best gig of your life because you're sober. So the issue was that Korn, you know, they all had their different stories with addiction or partying too much and got their collective live on track, so to speak. The guy they had in the band at the time, well, the first guitar player left because of addiction. The guy they had in there currently at that time was drinking himself to oblivion and they couldn't do much about it. So they wanted to get him out and get me in. So they're like, we need a sober guy who knows what's up. So I was sober. I had experience, vast experience touring. And that's how I got the gig because I was sober. So go back to prior to that. Yeah. So, so you, the lie that you were telling yourself was that to be a success in the music industry, you needed to be using or drinking or yeah. that was just part yeah. of the, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Was that yeah. kind of the whole... 
I had lifestyle a, belief yeah, system. Yeah, I had a few like a lot of musicians. I had a bunch of horrible uh, bands. I like to say crappy. That's not a cuss word. I can say that. You right? can say that. <laughs> and we had a that. bunch of crappy bands, and then I just I you know was a big drinker, partier, weekend warrior, whatever. And then I discovered methamphetamine, and I had just started this new band, and it became what I considered my muse. I was you know doing art and drawing and writing and learning drum machines and programming beats and all this stuff. And being kind of like the leader of that band, especially for our sonic direction, I thought it was like, well, this is the meth, clearly. You know what I mean? Uh, and so you were crediting, thank, thank goodness for the meth because yeah, it's, well, this it's, is clearly the the thing that changed in my life was I started doing meth, and now my bands went from crappy to now we're selling out clubs all over and blah blah blah. So, you know, and again, like what you're doing earlier. This isn't about like, hey, if you're not a tweaker, you can't relate. Maybe you've done this with working out or you've done this with wine or you do it with running away from relationships. You know, we grab onto the thing we think's working and it's actually, you know, ends up killing us or holding us back. And that's what, what was going on. Um, so, yeah, I toured for a decade. We got the record deal and I was a full-blown tweaker flying to New York. I mean, it was just disgusting, but also having the biggest success of my life. Wow. Isn't that insane? So you couldn't tell me I had a problem. Now, we could think of how many athletes or actors or super successful people who are killing themselves, but then they say, well, look at my movie just came out and I just made millions of dollars. I clearly don't have a problem right. or whatever. Um, we love to use success as proof that we don't have a problem, mm -hmm. right? When usually success means money and a hot partner. Right. And we know that doesn't mean anything. Um, so anyhow, I crashed and burned and went into a rehab. And I think like anybody, when we're looking at change, like I'm not going to be an addict anymore. Maybe I'm going to work on my weight or I got to do something about anger. We're afraid on what lies on the other side. And our brain, my brain told me, well, this sobriety stuff doesn't come with being a musician anymore. It doesn't. And it told me all these limitations that would be on my life. And the reality is, and the story we hear over and over and over is, no, the stuff that you want to change in your life is actually making your life much smaller, much less enjoyable. And when we master them or let go of them, we're actually becoming who and what we truly are. Like, I don't like the concept that I'm broken and I need to be fixed. I like the concept is I have things that I need to let go of to become who I am and what I truly am. Mm -hmm. So like... I've let go of my addiction. Like you said, I'm not powerless over booze and drugs anymore. I'm more truly West Gear than I have ever been. So a couple of questions. And I like that you said that, uh, you know, the lies that we tell ourselves and success can mask or can be the excuse that we use. Look, I'm, this is working for me, so I, yeah. I don't need to give this up. I did an interview. It's been a couple of years now with the friend that actually connected us, Jason Waller. Yeah who was a TV personality. He was on that mm -hmm. show, Laguna Beach in the Hills. And, and along with him, I also interviewed a, a beautiful woman who was uh, Miss USA. So here she is, Miss USA, most beautiful woman on the planet, so to speak, yeah. busted for cocaine use. Yeah. There she is in, in rehab, you know, and I, yeah. I, I joke with her, you know, so did you have your crown on there in rehab wearing <laughs> your crown or whatever? But the, but the point sure. that, I know, but their whole message was, no, look at us, we're the face of addiction. People think that the face of addiction is the yeah. homeless guy under the bridge. And That's no, no, I no. It's, so, and so we see this a lot. You say that people have major success and that's the reason to not having to give that up or to seek help. Yeah. And it could be anything. It could be trauma. You know, you could have trauma you haven't faced and that's why you're still single or you could be battling food addiction or whatever, you know, and you're, you know, making lots of money in the stock market. And so you don't have a problem with, no, dude, you got to get down to that stuff you had with your father. <laughs> you know what I mean? And a lot of people too, they compensate for their mental, emotional challenges, their addiction by uh, being like workaholics and perfectionists mm -hmm. and going after success mm -hmm. to prove to themselves they don't have a problem. Well, aside from the addiction part of it, so yeah. what, what was it like to have a hit record and, and uh, traveling for 10 years on the road? What, what was that like? Mm. Well, there's two segments of that. I have like the drunken version, which was I was young and it was awesome. And, and it was also uh, embarrassing because I did a lot of stupid stuff. And Wait, how old were you? Probably did that from roughly 25 to 35 or something like that. Okay. And <clears throat> yeah. how old are you now? 
Oh, we don't talk about that. We don't? <laughs> Do I have to? No, I guess not. <laughs> Wind's all bummed out. Please, I'll release it in your bio like you're a... <laughs> yeah, my Wikipedia, my Wikipedia is wrong. Oh, okay. All well, right. here's the thing. Now, there's, Do you have a true Hollywood story that I can uh, access? And I no, I wish I did. But uh, Jason not, has one. Have you seen Jason? Yeah. Well, he's a bigger star than I. He's just Laguna Hills, very big show. All right. Uh, so here's the thing: it's people are like, you should be proud of your age. I am. I know that I look great for my age, and blah 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 for my age, and this for my age, and all that. Yes, I know. But the other side is like, what does telling people my age? What purpose does it do? There's no purpose. It only allows them to judge me. That's what I think. All it does is it allows them to judge me. And as far as I'm, and so maybe this is some deeper work I should do around this. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Do you know how many times I get asked at the gym, how old are you? Like that happens almost every single day that I'm at the gym. Yeah, yeah. People are like, how old are you? Because if you guys haven't seen Wynn, he's yoked and shredded and yeah, yeah. So people are like, wow. I have an eight-year-old daughter. I have to be. My God, I I need energy, man. Yeah. So I don't know. I just think it's like. I don't know. Is it anybody's business? How old is it? Only is it? I <laughs> there have, is an issue here. I want you to know. Yeah, that probably. Okay, is, okay. when we when great. we're done with this, we'll call a little. There's got to be a, a group that be, you can join to help you through this. There's I'm, has to be. There, there has to be. But okay. but all it serves is like for ageism. You know what I mean? Like right. like what if I was going to get another gig in a band and they thought I was forty? They go cool. But what if I'm fifty eight and they're like, oh, that's too old. Look, wait, why? Because you saw the number. Just look at me. I'm right here, and you know what I mean. Okay. Wes looks good. Hire him. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay. <laughs> okay, so around 25 to 35, you're having this incredible experience traveling the planet. So There's people well, listening to this going, that's true. It's nobody's in business. <laughs> okay. okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So what was that like? It was insane. It's a surreal thing to stand on stage. And in my first band, you know, I you know played a big part in writing the songs. And so you have that thing of like, you've written this song and this guitar riff. And you remember when you were in your bedroom and all the work that you were doing. And now you're watching 20,000 people dance to it or 60,000 people To bounce a song that you wrote. To, and you're just like, That's it's... Bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I saw, I saw that cool. picture on your Instagram, the picture of you, and you're standing there, and it's, it's a selfie, and behind you is that yeah. concert going on. Yeah, big yeah. concert. And I get chills thinking about it. Um, because, you know, for me, I don't know what other musicians and actors and people who get to be entertainers do it for. what. But for me, it was always that. Like, I always wrote a song thinking about what it would be like to be in a crowd, listening to it, dancing to it, marching to it, whatever, you stage diving to it. And so when you see that reaction, it's really cool. I'm sure. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you left all of that in 2003 for a lifestyle change. So tell us some stories. Before we started recording, I I asked Wes, I said, is there anything that we can't talk about? Yeah. Of course, you didn't say I can't talk about your age, but that's another (laughs) That's true. Uh, I won't bring that up anymore. See, now you have to remember that. Next time somebody asks you that, is there anything we can't talk? Yeah, you can't talk about my age. But maybe that banter was helpful. So maybe it's good. Okay, so. uh, So, uh. Tell us stories, because I, I think that the best teachers and mentors are storytellers. Yeah. It's easy for me to quote doctrine or scripture or facts or whatever, but if I can a- attach a personal story to that, sure. my personal story of struggling with that principle, that's when people, I feel, start to listen and start to learn. So, And maybe the question I'm asking is, uh, how bad did it get? Yeah, so we got the record deal. We're touring. I got off the heavy drugs, kind of got seen. I wouldn't say under control. It was just a better version a little bit. And then and then what happened is because I didn't realize that part of my addictive personality, I was also kind of like a love addict, meaning like I just really felt insecure and wanting to be loved. And that had me go into bad behaviors where I got into an issue with uh, the singer about a girl, which they say the things that bring up bands is always romance and finance. But, And we couldn't resolve that. And I made some horrible poor choices there. And so he and I were like the main songwriter guys, and it destroyed our relationship. And as much as we tried, we couldn't repair it. So the band fell apart, and I lost my brotherhood. And this is something where I feel like it's almost like what I learned when I work with wounded veterans. is like, because when you're in a band, that's your family, your brothers, your mission life, it's what you do. And then it was gone. And I was like, who am I now? I don't have a career. I barely graduated high school. And so what happened is 
And I saw this in my, I did a timeline of my addiction when I was in treatment. What happened was when I left the band, I was so lost, even though my brother gave me a great job right away, which I hated, that I went back to all the bad stuff I was doing, all the bad behaviors. So I think maybe if people are listening, you know, other times in your life where, you know, when you hit an emotional bottom or an emotional challenge or an emotional low, the bad behaviors come, you act out, you date bad, you whatever, get into porn, I don't know. But for me, I went back to meth. And then this time I picked up heroin because my brain said, well, the problem was you're doing meth. It's way too tweaky. Now, my friend actually said, my friend, quote, he said, here's your problem, man. You got to do this with your meth. And he showed a heroin to me and I was like, oh my God, dude, you're so smart. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that to me. And then that that's how, when it got really, really bad because I was lost, broken. My soul was ripped out, losing my band and my music. And I'm working at a job that just didn't feel right to me. And I'm going to work on meth and heroin trying to do a desk job. Wow. But the, the low part was like I was uh, – well, put it this way, I wasn't hadn't slept in you know months pretty much, and I would go out to a bar once in a while to get a drink, and people would go, "Wes, how are you?" And I'd be like, "I'm fine, man." But I knew what they meant is, "Dude, what is wrong with you?" And I looked so bad. Some girl left, who knows, makeup at my place, and one morning I looked in the mirror and I was like, "Oh my god, I look like death." So I started wearing makeup to cover the dark spots and everything, which I probably just looked even creepier. You know what I mean? But what we often talk about in this stuff is the low wasn't the fact that I was like 123 pounds and hadn't slept and in hell and misery. It was the emptiness I felt and being so lost and not wanting to live anymore and and thinking this can never get good again, ever. That was really the bad part where I was willing to eventually go to treatment. So do you ever feel hesitant in sharing how bad it got or do you ever feel embarrassed to tell any of the stories? No, I've just kind of, you know, shot from the hip. I mean, it's too late now. There's so much out there to to even take a second, a second guess it. I've just been so open. Well, how about this? When Head was touring, we were so proud of our drug use. I was so brainwashed that it was sex, drugs, rock and roll that I, I shared it from the soapbox. So there's still articles floating out there about how I did meth and speed and aggrandizing it, you know what I mean? Right. And so I guess it's it's good to get out here and go, <laughs> no kids, bad idea, uh, yeah. Well, I th- but that's the same story of a lot of people Yeah. who used to say one thing and now they're coming back to say, yeah. I was wrong. Yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> Please. And, and, and the reason I share this story is because I believe, and the reason I'm okay sharing it is because I think there's people that will hear it that go, okay, I can relate to that, and then I can help them. They'll hear themselves in my story and and find hope. So if you were on the phone with the kid that I was talking to this morning, what advice would you have given him? What would you have told him to do? I mean, because I felt like I was being pretty direct and brave, so to speak, to say, dude, you're lying to yourself. That's Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would, I mean, I don't have all the variables, but what I would say is that people were recovering long before rehabs even existed. You know what I mean? And there wasn't always uh, rehab and insurance to pay for you to go do a residential stay. And what people did is they walked into support group meetings and maybe tried 12-step programs. The point is, if we want it bad enough, nothing will stop us from getting it. Okay. Yeah. So tell us when this started to turn around for you. Uh, my how many, did you do multiple rehab? I had one rehab stay. Okay. And I was gung For how long? For two months. Okay. And once I got in there... Like I said, I thought my problem was drugs, but then when I got into some of the literature and the teachings, it really hit me, and I was like, oh, this is true, what I'm reading. This is me. I, I can't put anything in my body safely, and so I got all into the 12-step process, and I had a transformation that they promised would happen. The thing that helped me in rehab, too, was I had struggled my whole life, not just with addiction, but with life, and so... I heard a woman come in and share. She's like, I was a prostitute sleeping in a park, turning tricks, shooting dope. I never shot dope, but I heard the desperation and how bad it was. And she said, I did this recovery process. I did 12 steps. Now I went back to school. I'm at the man of my dreams. I have a loving family. and I run a law firm. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You got that life out of doing wow. this process? 
So I bought into the process, you know, and if you're listening at home, you don't have to buy into what I'm saying or the 12 step process, but find a process that you believe in that gets you with people who say this got me where I want to go and do it with all your heart. And that's what I did. But the thing is, I didn't just want to not use. I wanted an incredible life. And I heard these stories and I got almost two and a half years sober. And I met the girl and I went and I just I lost my recovery program. I stopped doing what worked, what got me there. You know, kind of like when somebody goes on a diet and you lose the 20 pounds and then you're like, hey, I lost 20 pounds. Let's get a Big Mac. Yeah, that's basically what I did. And then I relapsed. So then I went and I didn't go back to rehab. I just went back to, I knew what to do. That's how I felt. And I just went back into it. And it was about two and a half years sober the second time. And I was still in this thing, music's over for me. But what would happen is the lie, right? I would go to a show and watch people play and I couldn't even handle it because my gut said, you're supposed to be up there still. And it wasn't about like up there so the chicks can look at me like me and be signed an autograph. It was like, you're supposed to play still. And so I was really into prayer meditation and I still am. I believe in this magic spirit of the universe where you can manifest and et cetera, et cetera. I have so many incredible meditation stories. But uh, I started doing this Wayne Dyer awe meditation for manifestation. And I said, you know what? I do want to get back into music. And I said, but you know what? I'm not going to go get in some dumb punk band and drive around in a van at 38 years old or whatever I was. And I started uh, meditating all the time, 20 minutes a day. And within 10 days of that, telling the universe I want to get back into music, Corn Monkey texted me and said, hey, you want to come play for us? I hadn't spoke to those guys in a decade. So, I mean, you can't even make this stuff up. And, and, wow. and that's what happened. And uh, so I got that, that huge opportunity, all because I was sober, like we were talking about. Hmm. Now, tell us about how you got involved in using your music as a platform to engage other people in the world of recovery and sobriety, because that's yeah. where this is all leading. Yeah, so... We were talking earlier about being of service to others, which sounded cool in a way like, oh, help people when I was younger, but I didn't really ever do it. And as much as I'd like to posture this as a completely altruistic <laughs> decision I made because I'm enlightened now, that wasn't the case at all. What happened was the original corn guitarist, Brian Welch, was coming back to the band and I saw the writing on the wall. But in my recovery, I also knew while I'm playing with corn, I better parlay it. Probably not going to last forever. I'm in the music business. And so I was kind of thinking of like, what can I do next? What else can I do? I started a record label, blah, blah, blah. And that went away. So when the corn gig was going away and then eventually did go away, I remember starting again to self-pity because I didn't really have a trade. I had only played music my whole life. And now I'm a sober musician, which you could really say – Wow, this sucks because we all know artists are broke and I'm poor me. I'm sober. And so I, I was, you know, getting my prayer meditation. It was the only thing I had. I was like, all right, God, I know you didn't put me down here to suffer as a miserable, sober, broke musician. So if I'm not sitting here to suffer, then how can I be who I am, sober musician, and help people and make a living? And I think that that was the, probably the first time I ever prayed, how can I help people and make a living? I probably prayed to help people before, but but anyhow, that's when to me, to use a metaphor, the gates of heaven opened up. And I had this idea to bring music into treatment centers because when I was in treatment, we had yoga and we had, you know, all these, you know, we're drawing pictures with crayons, but we didn't have music. And we all know how magic music is. If you ask anybody out there, like how music can transform you, it can make you dance. Think about it. Music makes people jump up and dance just hearing a sound. Music right. makes people feel sexy. Music pumps people up for the gym. It's a powerful element, but it wasn't in treatment in any grand way that I saw. So I had this idea. Uh, it came to me in a bolt of lightning, so to speak, for something called Rock to Recovery, where I would go into treatment centers and write songs with people. And the idea of Rock to Recovery is getting the healing, therapeutic, transformational elements of playing music, playing music in the hands of non-musicians. Because traditional music therapy is usually lyric analysis, listening to songs and talking about how it makes you feel. I mean, there's a lot of different things they do, but and I'm not 
diminishing it, but you know, maybe they do drum circles, but usually isn't playing music so much. And I kind of stumbled with dumb luck into this, you know, but what we know now scientifically is that when you listen to music, it engages half of your brain. So how magic is music when you listen to it and that's half of your brain. But when you play it, it engages your whole brain. It's very, very unique in that way. It's like one of the, if not only, I'm not a scientist, it's one of the few things it does. And what it does is it does for uh, your brain what psych meds does, but naturally, like helps with serotonin, dopamine. It helps you to stimulate the release of oxytocin. Oxytocin is known by scientists as the love molecule. It's what we release after sex. It's what we release when a mother breastfeeds and has that connection with her child. It's what we release when we hug somebody. Oxytocin is the love molecule. It's the thing that makes us feel loved and connected, which the opposite of addiction or all the struggles, trauma, is connection. And so we go in and we connect with people on a topic of discussion in rock recovery. We talk about something they're going through that's real, and we put it to music. And we write and perform the song together in an hour. So if you can imagine in a treatment setting, when we work with wounded warriors now, addicts, sex trafficked people, you know, victims of sex trafficking. And what happens is a lot of people, they have a hard time opening up to a therapist. They don't want to talk or they have a hard time putting into words and expressing what they've been through or what they're challenged with and what have you. And so therapists would walk by the room and they'd see us in the room jamming out a song we just wrote a few minutes ago, singing from our heart about like, you know, trusting men again or whatever it is. And they're like, how did you get Cindy up off the couch and she's jumping around singing? And when we get them singing, you know, we have a, we'll process maybe the shame and the guilt and the darkness in the verses. But in the courses, we always get into the solution, like we can do it together, whatever. So they're singing this mantra of positivity. The therapist goes by and goes, wow, I can barely get Jennifer to say two words to me. You have her up in her body, jumping around, singing. And, what's and really- Cindy and Jennifer aren't musicians. They're not singers. They're no, not- never. Right. No, but we know in our program how to crack them open. And then what's even more incredible is when the group's done and they go back into the milieu and they're walking around the treatment center, they're still singing that song. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing can stop me. We can do it together. Whatever we get, you know, in all the cheesy lyrics, of course. But so the therapist and the clinicians see these transformations happen. Like, for example, just to rant on a little longer. Keep ranting. This is your interview, man. This, I love this. <laughs> you kidding? <laughs> so, for example, just to put a finer point on what I've seen in here is I went to do a group. A young woman walked into the group. I'm doing a females group uh, of an addiction treatment and mental health treatment center. And this girl walks in and she goes, I just found out my best friend OD'd and died. She's in tears. She's uh, just devastated. And she said, I can't do this today. And I go, I get it. I'm getting chills right now. But this is what this program's here for. This is bring it in here. Let's write a song to her. And we wrote a song about all the friends we'd lost and how we felt about them. And the chorus was singing about, hey, we love you forever. We know you're here still with us. And and by the end, everybody in the room was giggling. And I'm not saying we were ecstatic, you know, but she went from crying to giggling and happy. Tell me a drug that does that. Tell me a pill you can give somebody who just loses their friend that transforms them like that. And I've seen this in so many different ways. So you're just selling hope. You're creating hope. It's truly hope. Yeah. One of the things I talk about is, uh, you know, in life, we're born these pure loving spirits as children before the hurt and the life experiences. And this isn't about, you know, claiming victimism. It's called life. We get hurt. Dad bums us out. They call us a name, whatever. And we kind of get this crust of, you know, this protective crust over us and might have big traumas and little ones and whatever. And when a lot of people come into treatment, that crust is really thick and they can't believe they can find happiness again. They can't believe they can find joy or success or successful relationships. And what we do is we help them break through that crust and find that, what I like to say, that childlike, playful spirit that's still alive in all of us. And I think oftentimes, and maybe again, you're listening at home and you're like, well, addiction isn't my problem, but maybe you're working too hard and you forgot how to have fun. 
and the stresses of job and home and your marriage and the children are so much that you, you've lost that ability to get down into that playful spirit that's inside of you. And that's what we're doing. And so, yeah, it's measures of wellness, giving them hope and faith and, and joy again. I want to get into more stories that you have because, again... That's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm, that's all the stories I have. I, I know that it's more than just that one woman, that girl who lost a friend to addiction. Yeah. But you found a love for, for teaching before you stumbled across this, right? Because uh, you, you tell the story of yeah. working at Fusion Academy Learning Center. What what happened there? Yeah, um, I've always loved to share my knowledge of music and like music theory and stuff like that. But uh, did you I, study that, or is that all self-taught? I'm self-taught. Yeah, okay. self-taught guy. I mean, I went to college and flunked out and whatever. But I, I'm, I'm a I self-taught. was there. I was there in the back row with you. Remember? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Totally. Um, you know, and, and if you listen at home, I think school's an amazing thing. I think if anybody can go do it and get that, great. I uh, struggled with school, and I always do better just learning what I want, when I want, how I want to learn it, than going into a formal setting. And I found that a lot of people that I respected in life, um, the producers, the artists, I'd be like, man, how would you become a record producer? They'd be like, oh, I just did it. You just did it? Yeah, I just started recording okay cool so that's been my journey i just whatever i want to do i just go do it but i've always had a love uh passion for teaching and then uh it was actually my brother he heard of the fusion academy because they had an office in huntington beach the founder michelle rose gilman incredible woman she was finding that there was these kids in schools that were kind of forgotten about that had some sort of difficulties learning uh, not necessarily special ed or anything but just this you know section of students that needed extra care and she created she started in her home but she created a, a concept where it's one teacher to one student and that's what i did i did one-on-one teaching of music at this fusion academy where kids were struggling in high school would come and we'd kind of give them you know one teacher one student through all the courses of high school and i got to teach music there and i did music production and all sorts of stuff like that which is really cool. I mean, to get that super intimate, I'm the teacher, you're the student, it's just me and you, you and I, right? Got to use the correct English if you're a teacher. It's just you and I, and we're going to go hammer on how to write a song together. And so that really got me more connected to that concept of writing a song with people and seeing how powerful it was. So just more of a foundation that you're on to something here. Well, yeah, well, what was happening was, to go deeper into it, I was the music teacher and I was asked to teach kids guitar and teach them drums and teach them all this stuff. But what I realized in Fusion is it was so much funner to teach when we would compose together. Like instead of here's just well, a beat. Why, why is that? Why do you think that is? Because we're creating together and it's ours and we can play to our strengths so much. You know what I mean? And it just is more engaging, I think. You know, you could argue that some people maybe would rather learn a Led Zeppelin song. But when I could take like, hey, we're going to work on this beat and we're going to do this beat and now let's turn it into a song together, it became a project that became ours. And I think there's a real pride of ownership in that. And so I think like when uh, you're learning maybe a Jimi Hendrix solo, it's cool. And you could say, hey, I did this. But what about that feeling when you're like, I wrote this song together? Not only did I learn how to play drums, but I wrote a song with this guy and it's ours. So when you're in a circle of some of those that you mentioned before. So it's their addiction recovery or it's PTSD from some trauma. Um, how many are in that circle and how many of them have any kind of music background? Or does it happen that none of them have a music background and yet together you're able to compose a song and they feel like they were a contributor in that? Can you just yeah. kind of yeah. explain that to us? Yeah, uh, we'd like to keep the group sizes not too big because we like to have everybody have the opportunity to really be engaged in instruments. We use keyboards and guitars and drums and lyric writers, and, you know, we can get multiple people singing as a group. So, you know, I mean, we've done groups 30 and 40 big, but we like to keep it around a dozen or under. And, and a lot of times in these treatment centers, that's how it rolls. So it works uh, with their size. And as far as the talent you know, you'd be surprised how many people, and I love to say this, I love to say that pop culture stole music 
from the average person. Because if you think about it, music didn't get created by a caveman walking through the jungle and a piano fell and he, he played Chopin, shredded, right? It didn't go that way. Music was, how did it start? Well, we can imagine it was some simple beats and rhythms and singing and chanting. And they didn't go like, no, no, you guys suck. You over here, just Bob can chant. He's the only one. It was done as a community exercise experience, like with the dancing and all that. And so and I think when we get in, what happens, what we find is a lot of people going like, oh, I'm not musical. I'm not musical. It's like, no, you're musical. It's in your DNA. You, what you mean is you're not a pop star. And we're not trying to say you're a pop star. We're trying to say we're not in here to be great or Beyonce or Shakira or whoever, you know, Michael Jackson. We're here just to express and create together. And most of the best songs are a bunch of simple chords and a few simple notes that are really memorable. And songs are written, the best songs are written from a place in the heart. And that comes into the lyrics. And so, um, you know, you'll be surprised how talented people are in these groups. Now, some of the songs sound horrible. There's no doubt. But some of them, as a guy who's sold a lot of records and have a lot of very talented rock star friends, some of them you're like, holy moly, this is so good. Because there's a lot of hidden gems and hidden talent out there and well, the you world. shared earlier there was a little formula that you're using for writing the so that the verses are yeah life sucks this is what I've been through this yeah. is the pain and then the chorus is the hope the hope yeah well because if you let the average person in a rehab they'll just go down the pity party or the yeah, I mean it gets it could stay dark the whole time and right. so us as the practitioners are like okay that's the problem what's our solution and let's put it in the hook so how did you ever get into these so you had a concept. So you, by accident or whatever, you stumbled across this formula yeah. Yeah. of I have created something that's working with these people who are not musicians. And yet we yeah. have gone through this experience together and this really, really worked. How did you then take that to, did you call rehab centers and say, hey, I have this idea. Can you let me in? I mean, what you well, do? Well, it was the opposite. It was I had this idea. And I went around pitching it. I made a horrible, by the way, if anybody's listening to this from an entrepreneurial sense, I had a, a business I was trying to start before this where I, me and my, quote, partner spent six months trying to make the perfect marketing doc and we never got the plane launched. This thing, I made the worst marketing doc ever and just said, I'm going out there and pitching it. And I took every meeting I could get. And I was about, okay, I started pitching in October of... 2012, I founded my organization on 12 12 12 because I figured well, that's a pretty amazing date. I better file for the business, the nonprofit entity then. And I pitched all the way until May of 2013 before I had a bite. So I would take these meetings, tell them my idea. They go, Oh, that's a great idea, music. Okay, cool. You want to hire me? Nope. And it went on like that for a long time until, again, the lies that our head or the our head tells us or the walls we put up. There's one guy I didn't call. He was an old friend. I don't even know. And it was, his name's Paul Moen. And we used to party together way back when. And he actually was running a treatment center. And I was like, yeah, Paul's the only guy I haven't called. You should call Paul. Nah, forget it. And I was like, no, okay, I'll call Paul. And he's like, I love the idea. And I almost didn't call him. And he goes, I want you to start in two weeks. And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm going to do. And then I talked to my brother who's super smart and he goes, you're going to, wait, wait, you're going to write songs with non-musicians? This is never going to work. Like you can't, it's hard. You know how it is when you're in a band, everybody's fighting for their idea to get in there. And, and I was like, oh my God, oh my God. I go, Paul, Paul, you got to give me a couple more weeks. And I had to take a time out and I almost got so scared I didn't try it. But then I saw the TED talk about the why. It's very famous. It talks about Apple computers and selling people on the why. Meaning like in the, in the old days of sales, they would say, hey, you want a computer? Buy my computer. Here's my computer. Buy. But Apple basically said, well, do you want your photos to integrate with your music? And this that's why you buy an Apple computer. So I knew that my first session, I could go in there and just talk to these gentlemen and say, listen, 
I've been in your shoes. I've been in a rehab and you're going to have to be in classes and sessions of some sort all day, every day. So wouldn't you love music to be part of that? Yeah, we would. I go, okay, look, I don't know how this is going to go. I have no idea. This could suck. But this is your group and we're going to build it together. And uh, we just went for it. And luckily from the first session, you know, there's a couple things I did through my experience as a musician. They're trade secrets. I can't tell you. I can't. But it, like it was starting to go off the rails. And I was like, oh, my God, this is horrible. This is not working. This is not working. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. And I made a couple adjustments. And by the end of the first session, we had a little song together and the guys were pumped. And from there, we've been refining it for eight years. And each guy I hire is like a super amazing human. They're all in recovery and they've produced records and they bring their own special sauce. And we keep refining our recipe. Um, just out of curiosity, have you ever done anything with any of these songs that have come out of these sessions? Like, have you ever recorded we, any of we them? We really have you want ever... to. Uh, we, I'd love to do a, an album. The challenge is we've written about 17,000 songs now. We do 500 what? sessions a month. We work with over 100 treatment centers. So just the sheer management of the data. Can you imagine in there, we probably have at least a few amazing nuggets. Um, but the one that got the most notoriety was uh, uh, we got a contract working with the Department of Defense to work with Air Force wounded veterans who have the highest suicide rates. And we are having such success with our program. And there was this first Master Sergeant, Bobby Connolly, who would always come to the sessions and support us and give us rides. Well, he died suddenly of a heart attack doing like a warrior athletic game. And it devastated the group and it was hard and we had to come and do a rock recovery session. We're like, man, Bobby would usually be here playing guitar and he's dead. So we wrote a song called Bobby's Song. And in as, as the universe, I'm getting chills again, as the universe would have it, that song came out really good. Wow. It was one of the great ones. And so Bobby's Song's been played and replayed at many events and then... We had our five-year anniversary party a couple of years ago, and I actually flew in the veterans that wrote that song to Hollywood, and we played it on stage, and, you know, Drew Carey was in the audience, and uh, my friend Brian Fogel, who won an Academy Award for his film, Icarus. Anyhow, the audience had some star power in it and some sober people and whatever, and uh, we performed the song on stage for mm. a sold-out crowd, and that was pretty special. Yeah. But we'd love to make a record. We would right. love it. And, we, and we've talked about it a number of times. It's just the sheer like uh, process. It's just doing it. We just got to do it. I think I skipped a step with you here because we need to talk about the, the launch of Rock to Recovery. So, so give our audience more information on what it is. Because we, we said, oh, you're doing like 500 sessions a month currently. So just give us a... Well, I definitely shared that it, the, the endeavor was to get music playing a bigger part in transformative uh, modalities, whether it's a treatment of addiction, mental health, wounded warriors, victims of trauma, PTSD, TBI. We actually work with uh, troubled youth. I've gone into uh, youth correctional facilities with like gangster girls and written songs. And so... That's really what we're about is using the transformative healing powers of playing music to help change the world. And so, yeah, we've met all those things that I just mentioned. It started in addiction arena almost exclusively, and we've been able to grow it into all those other arenas, as we said, doing 500 sessions a month. And, and we have a nonprofit so we can donate our services to, you know, a lot of these programs you know, they can barely feed and keep people housed and bring in some, uh, you know, low dollar therapists. Not that the therapists aren't great. They're amazing. They're just taking cut rates to go help this demographic. And so they can't afford programs like ours. So the nonprofit helps us. We've been at the Brentwood VA, for example, for four years there. And right every Thursday, writing songs. And it keeps the vets engaged. It keeps them in their body. It keeps them singing songs of hope. And none of them have you know, killed themselves. And uh, so that's really the endeavor is to help people keep connected. Uh, through all of this work, you actually, in appreciation, back in 2017, they, the Wounded Warriors program, 
took you on a ride on an F-16 fighter jet? Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. So my rock star friends who saw that, who are much more famous than I, instantly hit me up, dude, you got to get me a ride on F-16. And it's like very few people. Doesn't happen. No. you Like, it's a big deal. And so um, this gal, Stacy, who is a dear friend who works for the Air Force, uh, submitted me. And, you know, obviously there's probably a lot of submissions. I was very lucky to get selected to drive in the F-16. If you don't know what that is, it's basically what the Thunderbirds do. The Thunderbirds who go out and do the aerial maneuvers at the air shows. It's the plane they fly. And uh, so the servicemen and women were asking, are you, are you so excited for your flight? I'm like, uh, I don't know. Because I don't know if I'm going to vomit. If I'm going to poop in my pants, I don't know if I'm going to pass out. I don't know if I'm going to panic attack. I don't, how do I be excited? I don't know. I'm going to go in a fighter jet. What the heck? I was super honored. And I mean, you know, you get, again, this is like a testament to this program of recovery. I was shown being lost and no job and no nothing. And these tenants of recovery that had me create a program to help people that leads me to getting a gift from the military in an F-16 and then so what, what happened, it's insane. I can't believe it. So yeah, I got in the F-16 and they basically flew, we flew out of Nellis. And when you take off, you get the plane off the ground and then they go literally straight up into the air, straight up like a rocket ship. And who knew you could do that in a plane? I didn't. And then when you're going straight up, instead of like go belly first, which would put negative G's, you come out of that going straight up and you go upside down. So now you're, the earth is on top of your head, basically. And then you roll out. And we did all the maneuvers of the Thunderbirds. Everything they did in the air show, we did. So you do, they do the first couple of maneuvers and see how you're reacting. As soon as we took off. So you didn't pass out, did you? No, as soon as we took so off, I was like, this is things. fun. Okay, so yeah, I was like okay. stoked. And this is so intense for people who don't know at home. You get in like this suit that they plug into air compressors that when you start doing high G maneuvers, the air compressors shoot air into your legs to squeeze your legs so tight, like imagine a blood pressure sleeve, to squeeze your legs like a, so you're like a uh, tube of toothpaste to squirt your blood back up into your torso so you don't pass out because the blood will rush out of your head and you'll pass out. And you have to do this hook breathing. You have to go because there's so much pressure on your chest. Okay, a G is one time your weight. So I went up to nine Gs, 9.3 Gs, which is 9.3 times my weight, which is about 175 pounds. So I have thousands and thousands of pounds of pressure on me as we're doing loop-de-loops and what have you. And when we got done with all the loop-de-loops and the maneuvers and we're out over like the Mojave Desert, the guy, and, and I was having a good time, but I was starting to get worn out, like this pressure and the hook and the flipping and the turning and <laughs> and the guy goes, okay, now you drive. And I'm like, I, I'm like, I can't do it. I, he goes, no, you're going to drive. I go, no, I'm too tired. I mean, I'm like, I can't. I'm exhausted here. This is like really taking the toll on my body. He's like, no, you're doing it. And it's like, there's a little joystick. It wasn't much bigger than my electric shaver, to be honest. And then you just tap the thing and the plane responds. I couldn't believe how responsive oh it is. So he goes, okay, you're going to take it. And you're going to jam it to the right. And we're going to do a barrel roll. And that's what I did. And we went... You know, we did a kind of like if you imagine the wings going like uh, arms on a clock and then he goes, okay, so now we're going to do a double barrel roll and now hold it. And then he would count like, OK, one o'clock, two o'clock to kind of give me some cognition on which way we're facing. Anyhow, so I'm out over the Mojave Desert flying a multi-million dollar F-16 doing barrel rolls. Jeez. And then you had to go back to your day job. <laughs> it was insane. Uh, you know, but I like to Does share. Does that story help you? With dates? Does it you help know, I never you, uh, share it. No, oh, okay. actually, I posted it on my Instagram, <laughs> and this girl I was talking to at the time, she goes, I don't know what's going on in this picture. And I'm like, well, it's me in the cockpit of an F-16 upside down over the Mojave Desert. So I don't know if it translates. That's on your Instagram? Well, I mean, months ago. I oh, I missed that. Yeah, well, you didn't go back far. Okay, well, then I will. <laughs> So a couple of other questions here. So you, you talked about in the beginning, you're talking about that brotherhood that you have. Yeah. You had it that brotherhood in the band, yeah. and then you had that brotherhood in, in recovery. Yeah. Can you talk about, you know, women in recovery? Oh, boy. Because I have a little bit of a inside awareness of organizations that 
are specific to women in recovery. Uh, there's a great organization called Friendly House based in L.A. And sometimes the, uh, the challenges that women face in recovery can be far greater than for, for men because oftentimes women can come with their children. And so they avoid recovery because going into recovery means that now they're separated from their children and they could risk losing their children. And so it's better to stay addicted, so to speak, than to risk that. So can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I'm not qualified to speak about a woman's experience in recovery, but uh, what I can talk about is we do work with an organization called, I want to say it's Destinations for Women. Oh my gosh, it's escaping me. But they they specialize in taking in mothers, pregnant women, or women with small infants. And it is of the most rewarding groups we get to do because uh, the children come into the group too. So isn't that... So their children are part of the circle? Of, they, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They can be, right? right? And then so they start participating. And then so if you, if you can imagine, like I love it, like we've talked about a couple of times, the lies our, our head tells us when it tries to imagine what our new life or transformed life or getting help looks like. These women were very scared to get help and, and to be able to bring their children along mm. as part of the connective exercises of recovery because that's really what it's about it's about connections you know um, and that's what we have to develop and I know in my experience in hearing stories from women um, you know a lot of times there's attachments to sexual trauma or or healthy relationships and so when we can get into these uh, settings I've been told a lot of time hey we don't let any men work with our women. You're one of the first men that they'll work with. And so I'll get to be the first positive role model for a man to go in there. And it's quite an honor to hear that. And especially for me, it's funny the gifts the universe gives you because, let's face it, when you're out there on drugs and drunk in a band, you're no role model for any male in terms of relationships with a woman. So for me... I take it very seriously in terms of my debt, if you will, to women. As we start to wrap this up, there's uh, two friends that I reach out to, friends of yours and friends of mine. Um, Jason Waller, who we mentioned already. And so I have a question from Jason. And also Eden Sassoon, the, the daughter of Vidal Sassoon. So they gave you questions to ask me? Uh-huh. Oh, this is like cheating. Okay. Well, it was no, cool because as, as I'm looking at your social media and the yeah. people that are attached, wait a minute, Eden Sassoon, she's yeah. following him. She's commenting, hey, Eden, do you know Wes? Yeah, I know Wes. I love Wes. And what Eden said was that uh, to dig deep. She said dig deep with him because he has a lot of stories and he has a lot of love and a lot of compassion. And I, so just that's what I feel like we've been doing. We so, have. So thanks for that. Thank you. And thank thank you, Eden. So much. You know, yeah, she, thank she, you. She thinks the world of you and, and the oh, work that her. you're doing. So Yeah, I love her. I love Jason. Now, and uh, Jason wanted me to ask you about how the pandemic has affected you, your mental health and sobriety and all that. Yeah, well, I'm going to be honest. I uh, One of my dreams of recovery was to buy this property out in the desert, and I just recently did that, and I noticed that splitting time, out there uh really had my on top of the i am a 12 separate i go to support group meetings it really had it so i wasn't going to as many of my support group meetings um i really need a lot of connection in my life i wouldn't call myself an extrovert but i need a i need proper dosages of connection like we're doing right now to you know keep myself just in a good way spiritually mentally and so yeah the pandemic has been a big challenge in that, you know, I, I just have to work harder at being creative on finding new ways to connect with people. So what I've been doing, which I suggest for everybody who's challenged is just FaceTime everybody. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as being in person, mm-hmm. but I've noticed that, you know, when we were kids, when we would just go to people's houses, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You just show up mm-hmm. and it was okay. Mm-hmm. Think about it. If you showed up at somebody's house, they'd be like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Something wrong? What's up? Your car broke? So we can't do that. But I feel like FaceTiming somebody is kind of like, 
oh, he just showed up at my house. And then I feel like people are okay with it. But it's really helped me to have more connections because I think in any challenge, we have the opportunity to be end up in a better place than we've ever been. That's the whole idea. It all exactly. happens for a reason. Yeah. That, if we that, make a, a reason. Right. We got It's our responsibility to make it a reason. So to answer Jason's question, it's made me pick up the phone a lot more. I'm calling my mom. I never called my mom so much. I love my mom. I'm just calling her all the time. I'm going to her house. I started bringing her uh, because she's 82. And I don't want them going out, her and my father going out to get food. So I drop them, you know, food like, you know, macaroni and cheese and stuff they can heat up. So it's made my relationships with my family better. It's made me speak to my friends more. It's making me FaceTime my friends more. So in that way, I'm staying more connected to people. But it was a choice that you made. You had well, to make I those adjustments. To. I had to. I had to catch myself. And that's really like, you know, the story of life is kind of calling ourselves out. And that's why I think, too, it's important to have friends that we stay accountable to. And, mm -hmm. and we, you know, somebody who can say like, hey, man. What are you doing? What are you doing? What yeah. are you doing? Why, why aren't you visiting your mom? Why aren't yeah. you? Yeah. You, why are you, we haven't seen you in a while. Why are you staying at home? You need to get out and, and uh, turn it into something good. we yeah. got to turn this into something We good. have lots of mentors that tell us that, you know, things don't happen to us. They happen for us. For us. Yeah. And I just, I just have to repeat that to myself a lot. There are some amazing things coming out of this totally. pandemic. Amazing things. But they can only be amazing things for us if we choose for them to be yeah this is a positive change in my life well one thing and this is such a simple little thing but you know like we're realizing how many businesses don't have to travel all the time and just do meetings on zoom i mean that's got to be great oh yeah <laughs> wow this has been incredible yeah well i mean what I an easy exchange this has been with you you know it's just real, real simple which is real how it's supposed to be yeah yeah, well, I'm kind of spaz. I talk a lot. This is probably... Yeah, have you met me? <laughs> You're a talker! Uh, we, yeah. get, we get paid to speak, man. We, we get paid to speak, and I love this stuff. This is my life and my passion. So hmm. this is fun, talking about, you know. Well, Wes, you have a final message to share with our listeners? Yeah, the final message, I would say, is that uh, I think the journey of life... For everybody, everybody is about letting go of all the things that aren't truly you. You know, that we're not broken. We don't need to be fixed. We just got to let go of the stuff that isn't our truest self. And in so doing, there's nothing we can't do. You know, there's nothing we can't do. And I think that how far a person can transform and achieve and what they can do and create is, is absolutely infinite. You know, it's only our own self that holds us back because there's that voice in our head that we don't even hear that's going, oh, that will never work. Oh, that can't happen. Oh, there'll never be forgiveness here. Or I can't recover from this, you know, and that's our voice keeping us stuck. So hopefully anybody listening to this realizes whatever that thing is that you don't want to deal with, that you don't want to talk about, that you think you can never do is the very thing. That you should go do right now. Well, and how often does it happen when somebody does do that one thing? They take that step and you ask them, so how did it go? Yeah. Oh, my God, it was so easy. Yeah. What was difficult was holding on to that anger for so long. What was difficult was not taking that step. That was the hard part. Yeah. My brother said years ago he's very smart, successful. He doesn't have any of the challenges I've had in this sense. But he's, he always says the hardest part of anything is just starting. Hmm. Just starting. Yeah. So tell us quickly, how can people learn more about you or find you or reach you or learn about your, your, your nonprofit? Just yeah. give us so, that information. I'm very active on Instagram. Easy to find. It's just seven letters. It's Wes, W-E-S, gear, G-E-E-R. You can hit me up there on the DM or something like that. Um, I have a website, which is westgear.com. I speak uh, internationally. And there's more information on me and my story and all that stuff. And then more importantly than the self-promotion is Rock to Recovery. Uh, because of COVID, we usually do a yearly event where we honor sober rock stars like Corey Taylor and uh, Moby and, and whatever. And we have a sober concert with 
A-list talent. We can't do the concert this year, obviously. So we really need your support, you know, and donations. And, and you know, a lot of times there's a lot of nonprofits out there and people are like, how can we help the nonprofit? You can just share a page. You go, hey, what these guys are doing is cool and help us get the word out. But it's rock to T-O, spell it out, recovery.org, uh, rock to recovery.org. Um, and finally, I'll end with this. We have free public-facing music sessions on Thursdays, meditation sessions on Wednesdays, and breath work on Saturday, and one other day I forget. But we have these public-facing Zoom sessions. If you want to come connect with us and our amazing staff and do some super amazing stuff like write music or breath work, come find us. Wow. Perfect. Thank good, you, Wynn. Good stuff. No, thank you. Just good, appreciate good stuff. you. I knew this would work. I just knew it. <laughs> I just knew it. <laughs> I just knew we could do it. <laughs> Thanks, Wes. Thank you very much. Thank you.